Hello and welcome to episode 133 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. I'm Anthony Malakian, uh, editor here at Waters Technology. And today, uh, our normal, uh, my normal co-host, James Rundle, he's on vacation, but we have a much better guest than James today. Actually, we have two guests today from IBM. Uh, first, I have uh, Catherine Guarini uh, from IBM and then Bob Suter from IBM. And today we are going to talk about quantum computing, some of the developments that are happening in the space and some of the projects that are happening specifically at IBM. But uh, Catherine and Bob, first of all, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Happy to be here. Yeah, our pleasure. Um, to start off with, um, maybe just quickly, uh, Catherine, why don't you give uh, a little bit of background um, as to your position, what you do at IBM, and then I'll switch over to you, Bob. Sure. Uh, my name is Catherine Guarini. I'm the Vice President for IBM Industry Research as part of our research division. My focus on how can we take all of the innovations happening in different functional areas through our computing technology our use of artificial intelligence, blockchain, and more, and apply those to some of the hardest problems across different industries like financial services, healthcare, and more. Okay. And Bob? So I'm Bob Sutor. I'm uh, the vice president for IBM Q, uh, that is Quantum Computing Strategy and Ecosystem. Uh, For the last few years in IBM research, I've I've led the math department here. Uh, But starting a couple of years ago, we got very interested in how we might uh, invade this area <laughs> as mathematicians invading the area of physics that was, was quantum computing. So I had started a group that focused on quantum algorithms, uh, and it was so much fun that at the beginning of the year I switched over entirely to quantum computing. Um, one way of thinking about this is that really quantum computing is a very holistic from the very smallest bit of you know of what is what is the chip all the way to the rooms to the ecosystem to everything here, uh, we have people scientists who develop the hardware and the software. Um, I work with everybody else, so mm-hmm. the, the the attorneys, uh, marketing, communications, other parts of research to try to coordinate the, the actual program we have. Okay, very good. And uh, Catherine and Bob are calling in, so you know there might be a little bit of confusion. But I'll let you know you guys decide who wants to take each question here. But um, to start, I guess, I guess it would be good to establish where we are today with quantum development. You know, how do we get here, and what are kind of some of the next benchmarks that our listeners maybe should be looking for? I know it's a big question, a wide question, but maybe just a kind of a, a state of the union for quantum computing as it exists today. Okay, so. Uh for a very long time, quantum computing was, was pretty theoretical. And even if you go back, let's say, 10 years, you'd see statements in textbooks that, that say, if anyone ever creates a quantum computer, you may be able to do this. Uh, but things really heated up about 10 or 11 years ago when people were able to create the first really stable uh, qubits, the actual uh, implementation of this basic unit of, of quantum computation. So a qubit is a quantum bit. Mm-hmm. And since that time, uh, that is once people really lit the fire under the, the possible way of building it, there's been a tremendous amount of additional science and engineering, so much so that 27 months ago, IBM was able to release on the cloud the IBM Q experience. And so this was a very small machine. It's a five qubit machine. Um, but it allowed people to go in and play with real hardware. And if you're going to be talking about quantum computing, 
today, you have to be talking about real hardware, all right? Not simulations, real hardware. And, you know, when we put it out there, we didn't know how many people would really be interested in using it. You know, was it a dozen? Was it a hundred? Well, now a little bit more than two years later, we've had over 94,000 people access the Q experience, and they've run over 5 million experiments. So clearly we, we struck a nerve, or people were curious, and they wanted to start playing. Uh, and since then, uh, for the general public, we've added a 16-qubit machine. We've also added uh, a commercial program called the IBM Q Network. Now, this is where the best and the latest machines will live, and they will be available to partners such as the ones we have now, such as JPMC and Daimler and Samsung, as well as many universities that are part of our, our hub system. Uh, we have 20 qubit machines there, and we've announced that we have 50 qubit prototypes that are running that will be available um, uh, early next year, likely. Um, so uh, let me just say that we're, we're well into this early, what I would call quantum ready phase. The machines are still relatively small. Um, it's not the number of qubits we're tracking, by the way. It's the number of very high quality qubits. Thousands of really bad qubits don't do you any good. So that it's this sense. trade off of saying, when will we have enough really good qubits to solve the problem that you have in mind? Okay. And uh, Catherine, maybe give you know some insight into you know there you have all these millions of experiments already um, on the system. Why do you think that there is this interest? Why are so many people looking to start experimenting now when we're still in early days, I guess, of quantum development? Yeah, I you know I think it's an exciting point right now because it's early, but we see such rapid innovation happening and growth both at the technology level and in the algorithms and application space that it's a great time to begin to explore what it might do. It, it, quantum computing offers tremendous promise. There's still quite a bit of work to be done on specifically which application areas, uh, in which industries will we have the greatest impact. Those, those tough problems around large-scale optimization are ones in materials discovery, chemistry, in financial uh, services spaces are ones that we believe are compelling and aligned to many of the capabilities. Within the financial space, you know, we with partners are exploring how, what use cases can quantum computing help us to optimize trading strategies, portfolio optimization, risk analyses, and more. And each of these areas um, are ones that have you know, so much value and importance in the industry and in partnering with our, our, our premier companies like um, JPMC, for instance. We're looking at how and, and, and when will we be able to le leverage a quantum computer to really drive advances here that are relevant to the industry. Maybe, you know, for myself and obviously for, for many of our listeners, when we talk about quantum computing, I think that there's there's a little bit of maybe confusion or as to how far away we are. There's all different kinds of predictions as to when we'll actually have commercial quantum computing available for, you know, I know that J.P. Morgan Barclays have already started working with you. Um, but 
how far away are we? Do is there a timeline that 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 that's kind of realistic for firms to kind of think about and follow? So, as I mentioned before, um, just for the sake of describing our, our general situation, we're in what we say is the quantum ready period. Mm. So, machines are relatively small yet powerful. All right, but we're using this time to educate people to have them start thinking about the problems, as Catherine um, described, about where quantum might be applicable. One of the things about quantum computing is that people should always say things like, quantum computing might, quantum computing could possibly. Mm -hmm. Anybody who is giving you hard dates doesn't really know what they're talking about, to be honest with you, Um, because there is a lot of science, there's a lot of engineering that must be done across the board, from fundamental theoretical physics to solving some very difficult engineering problems. And so it's not simply a question of saying, well, we we made X of these, and therefore it should be easy to make 2X, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That's not how the world works in in terms of of, of physics. So in rough terms, if we're in this quantum-ready period now where people are educating themselves, they're learning about why producing quantum algorithms is wildly different from any sort of classical programming, right? We think we will move into this this quantum advantage period in the next decade, and with luck in the next three to five years. And what this means is that in very specific places, in different industries, in different application areas, we'll be able to point right there and say, as far as we know, What we can do with quantum is, A, either possible, and we couldn't do it before, or significantly better than any other way we know using classical methods on a classical computer. And by significantly better, I don't mean twice as good, right? Just wait twice as long (laughs) classically. That's no big deal. I mean that it would take a thousand seconds instead of a million seconds, right? Something like that. And that's what we're hoping to see. And um, as Catherine described, um, uh, there are several application areas. A lot of the early focus is on chemistry for historical reasons. But indeed, people are looking at applications in fintech and AI. Just by wonder, how much... You know, how much is, of it is a competition between you know the the various um, you know the, the the providers that are looking to build this quantum computer, and how much of it is a community of teamwork that you know where yes you know you have IBM you have Google you have VMware however whatever else as well as the different academics that are involved in this field, how much of it is a combination? How much of it is kind of this individual we're trying to build this and be the first one? I guess. Well, first has come and gone, mm-hmm. okay, <laughs> to be very honest with you. And, and one of the incorrect things I read is you know, people saying, when will there be a quantum computer? Well, there have been quantum computers for quite a while, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as I say, 94,000 users later, you, know, you can't be holding your breath waiting for a quantum computer since people have already been doing it, right? Um, it's, a, it's, it's a combination, though, to an- answer your question. Um, yes, there is uh, commercial competition, as there is with any new technology, but we have a tremendous amount of respect for all the researchers worldwide uh, who have been working, and the many, many who are now coming into the field. 
uh, one of the things that you know now that that quantum computers exist and are starting to get bigger and better um, is people are attracted to it, and so mm-hmm. there are more graduate students entering the field. Um, there are more conferences that are out there. So we uh, we cooperate. There are uh, papers published, you know, as usual in in science. Um, but um, I tell you, I think we have an excellent running head start um, just in regard of, of what we put out there, the quality and the sheer volume of the number of people who have used our machines. Okay. And uh, Catherine, you know, to Bob's point, you know, chem- chemistry obviously was one of the first fields that this has become big in, but you mentioned that you know for finance, that trading strategies, portfolio optimization, risk management. That these are some of the areas that you know even with uh, some of the banks that I've spoken with and exchanges that I've spoken with, that's kind of where they see this. Can you maybe give some examples as to how a quantum computer would outperform a traditional um, computer in something like for trading strategy, portfolio optimization, something like that? Sure. So in financial services. Typically, this involves systems that are far too large or complex to analyze uh, them deterministically. So, for instance, risk analysis and management of portfolio assets. Today, we tend to estimate the loss or profit distribution of a portfolio using traditional classical computing methods, and they are only as, as good as the estimates that they are. Now, one of the techniques that's uh, used as, as a way to do this prediction are Monte Carlo simulations. Mm-hmm. And Monte Carlo simulations are, are one, one example of where we believe from our, our studies that quantum computing can provide a very significant advantage that en- enables a quadratic speed-up of in, in the best instances here, Monte Carlo methods. And it's when we have that, what it could provide, and the experiments today are looking at with a type of speed-up enabled by quantum computing, how could that offer the ability to do, for instance, an intraday analysis that is impossible because of the speed and accuracy in a classical computing implementation today. So this is an example, and and there are others that are more exploratory and many that we need to to do the research and and in in collaboration with our industry partners to say, how can we prove the the opportunity? And then what are the applications in, in very compelling and important ways that could be relevant in financial services and in other industries? Okay. And, you know, t- discussing this with other people, I've, I've heard some security concerns that we still have to kind of get our, wrap our heads around in the quantum space from uh, encryption, um, concerns pertaining to quantum entanglement, um, that uh, I've heard some people note that there's perhaps a worry that some of the advancements that we're making with blockchain distributed ledgers, of which you guys are also working on as well, um, that, that this could undo some of those advancements. Maybe talk a little bit about how you're going about this. What's some of the security concerns that you're looking to address now and start to think about now and how it will kind of change things like encryption and, um, and you know, distributed ledgers, things like that? So 
I think there is an extraordinary amount of misinformation and what we used to call FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt mm -hmm. about quantum and crypto. Um, I think um, it makes great, great headlines, but when you actually get down to the details, um, people understand that the situation isn't nearly as dire as, as some of the, these, these other people are saying. So uh, let me tell you where, where this, this starts, okay? Mm -hmm. um, in the 1990s, a mathematician called Peter Short, then at Bell Labs, now at MIT, invented an absolutely amazing algorithm um, that could factor integers uh, exponentially faster than we could using any known classical method. Mm -hmm. And, you know, most people don't care about factoring integers, really. You know, they, they do it in school and they say, okay, now you know how to do it. However, you know, if you then explain to them that certain security protocols like RSA depend on not being able to factor extremely large numbers that happen to be the product of, of two prime numbers that are close together, um, they start to get more interested. And if I tell you that maybe I can factor these much, much faster, um, then they, they get concerned again. Um, and, and so people have heard about this, and, and they say, oh, quantum will be able to, to factor these. Oh, no, we have a problem. Okay, well, here, here, here's the real situation with this. So right now, the largest machines that we have in prototype form are 50 qubits, and these mm -hmm. are 50 physical qubits, right? Um, there's also something called logical qubits, which perhaps we'll talk about later. But in order to do the types of factorization with Shor's algorithm for the types of numbers that are used by security today, we believe we would need on the order of 100 million qubits. <laughs> we have 50 today. You need 100 million. And this isn't many, many, many machines, each with 50. This is one machine with 100 million, right? And so our estimates are, if this is even possible, and we don't know if it will ever be possible to build a machine that large, that it will likely take two to three decades. Mm. So this concern about breaking cryptographic protocols is several decades in the future. Okay. Right? So this isn't going to affect Bitcoin tomorrow, right? Okay. first of all. So I, I, I hope that's clear. So, however, we can't just leave it there, right? We can't say, oh, there will be a problem three decades in the future. There's been a lot of work, including at IBM's Zurich Research Laboratory, on other types of encryption that cannot be broken by quantum methods. And so these have different names. Um, uh, I tend to call them post-quantum methods. Some people call them quantum-proof methods. Um, they're, 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 they're technically lattice-based crypto methods that aren't susceptible to uh, quantum calculations. So people are developing and standardizing those today, such as with NIST, with the federal government. And so over the next few years, these other types of protocols will be implemented, and they'll be used, we expect, very broadly. And so there will be this transition from where we are today, both for the types of transactional systems that use security, as well as 
going back and doing an analysis of encrypted data today and saying, well, does it need to remain encrypted? If so, let's, let's re-encrypt it using a, um, a stronger protocol. So no apocalypse, plenty of time to transition. So is it fair then to say then that quantum computing, what quantum computing will do is bring on kind of a new form of, of security, that, that there will be um, kind of new technologies that will develop out uh, because of uh, quantum computing development? Is that fair enough to say? Yeah, there'll be, there's, there will be the quantum computing technology itself. There'll be things that are developed on the side because of quantum computing. Um, so, for you know, for those who are old enough, if you think about going to the moon in the 60s, uh, Velcro was developed <laughs> because of the space program, right? So there'll be really interesting technologies that are spun off because of this, as well as what we hope are the interesting use cases uh, in all the different industries that, that Catherine looks over. Okay. And Catherine, you know, I guess maybe that brings me to this, uh, you know, to build on what Bob was just talking about. It will, I guess, you look at the legacy infrastructures that many banks, exchanges use. They like to, many like to think that they have these cutting-edge technology stuff like that. But there are some, you know, portfolio management systems or order management systems stuff like that, um, risk systems that are decades old. How will firms need to start thinking about, um, I guess, reconciling legacy technologies with? you know, something like quantum and just kind of new machine learning techniques, things like that of the future. Is this kind of something that firms are thinking about now, or is that too daunting of a task to kind of think about, you know, you know, something that's still, you know, a decade away when they have their own infrastructure problems just dealing with the day-to-day -day stuff today? I guess how is that kind of that thought process between the legacy that they have and thinking about what's going to be ahead for them? Yeah, it, it is it is not too early to start thinking about it. But I'll put I'll I'll put this in context, right? It is not our expectation or anyone's that quantum computing will replace all legacy computing infrastructure and take over the world. That mm -hmm. said, it's an incredibly important technology and uh, many, many businesses, including those in the financial services space that we've been talking about, are beginning to think about and explore what it will mean for them and how it can supplement, augment, optimize what they do and how they do it. It is not too early. And if you think about as a as a thought experiment, when we were at the early days of revolutionary technology like the introduction of the mainframe technology from IBM, you know, if companies had time five, ten years before the mainframe was first introduced, to begin to learn how to program it, to prepare for a migration, to exploit that technology. I think in hindsight, we, we, we all would have wanted to get on there and, and invest early to have that differentiation and that edge. And that's what we're seeing when we talk to big companies and small, and why, why both those existing those those companies who have an existing infrastructure that they need to think through how to how to how to leverage and how to advance, and those who want to get in early, like startups, and, and partner on the implications and the applications. 
So there is quite a bit of interest, I would say. Certainly not too early, but you know, as, as Bob has cautioned us all, we, we, need, to, we need to move with, with an appropriate understanding that this is still experimental. It's still exploration, um, but it, it, it will and it is incredibly important to a number of different business applications and, and the interest and the participation in the industry that we're seeing is, is because um, this is something people want to get ahead of, both understanding the opportunity for their business as well as in the context of the security, what could be the risks if, if they don't get on early mm. and understand the implications to further ensuring the security of their infrastructure and missing a competitive edge in the industry. Catherine, and obviously, you know, firms can come onto your environment experiment in, in the quantum computing environment at IBM, IBM Q, but do, are there any kind of recommendations that you'd make for investments that firms will should start as best practices almost if they should start making these investments into their own infrastructures from, you know, whether infrastructure or data quality or, or data aggregation, whatever it may be, but is there any kind of conversation you're having as far as the uh, the the investment that that other firms are going to have to start making on their own end, even though they can you know go and experiment uh, with you guys. Well, I think like many technologies, this is a matter of um, being an, an an early explorer, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's artificial intelligence, blockchain, or quantum, like many others. Those who are in early exploring the intersection of those technologies to their business are the ones who seem to be most successful at helping to shape those <coughs> implications and being out early. So I, I think the, the advice from what, from what I see, those who do this well are, are those who have innovation teams who are partnering with companies like IBM who are in exploratory phases and say, this is what the technology could be and together we explore the implications for their business. E each one of these companies right, has a unique um, set of challenges from where, where they're coming from and, and where they're trying to go. And so you know, IBM is not going to solve each and every industry application for them. I think it's in partnership. As we take the technology, we evolve the technology, we explore those, those opportunities, those use cases, but it's really in partnership with, with the industry leaders who know their business and have a particular agenda that they're trying to achieve that we can figure out together uh, how to solve those problems. Okay. If I may add something. Sure. Um, one of the things we're doing as part of the IBM Q program is building up what we call IBM Q consulting, right? Um, so let's say you're a CFO, you're a CFO, and in situations as Catherine described, you have a very fundamental question. Um, you've been hearing about this quantum thing for a while. It has a certain buzz. Maybe you heard about it on Star Trek years ago. Um, you know, and, and you really want to see, is this relevant to my business? Everyone's talking about it. Right? Um, and so it is important for businesses to start asking very fundamental questions about um, what is quantum computing and will it be relevant to my business and when? It's a very sort of simple set of questions. And I will tell you, there are some companies for which it will not be relevant, right? I mean, classical sure. computing is, is just fine and will be for a very long time. So the type of business strategy analysis that, that will need to be done for quantum um, 
is evolving, and that's something that we're looking to offer through IBM Q Consulting, both both working with the business side, but very closely with what you might call the quants or the highly computational people, right? So who are the people who are using high-performance computing right now in those companies? Um, where are the bottlenecks to their computation? Is it possible that quantum computing can help speed those up? What are the things that they don't even bother trying doing because there's no known method with, with uh, classical computing? So these are the people we want to talk to, and ultimately the solutions, assuming there are some, will be a hybrid. Mm. They'll be a hybrid of classical and, and, and quantum. They will be a hybrid at the, at the computer level. It might be a, a System Z with its incredible security today working with a quantum computer. It might be power computers, perhaps in HPC um, configurations, augmented by one or more quantum computers. So this is what people are exploring, and, and this wonderful combination right, of, of the best of both technologies, both on the hardware and the new machines we're that they have and the new machines that we're creating. Okay. And Catherine, you know, does other technologies play into this? You know, we, we've been talking a little bit about, you know, just some of the other, you know, kind of ancillary uh, uh, technologies around it, but things like machine learning um, and blockchain, are, are these things being built in development or are they kind of siloed out from, or is quantum computing kind of siloed out from these other things that are, currently in production in use today in all different manners, forms for trading strategies, portfolio optimizations already. Um, so I guess, is, are, is, are things like machine learning, are they used in conjunction yet in, in this kind of talk and this experimentation, or is it, that still too early right now? Uh, there, there are certainly connections. In fact, there's been some early research that suggests that, that there could be uh, advantage from quantum computing or speeding up some machine learning algorithms. So quantum helping AI, you could also imagine the opposite way. You know, as we advanced AI, artificial intelligence help for um, decision support and optimization and learning. How do we use AI to help in our design um, and, and optimization of our quantum computing? So, so these technologies are not mutually exclusive. Here within IBM Research, we look for those intersections, and I think even in application areas, you know, no technology becomes fully siloed. We see more and more that our um, you know, te technology is heterogeneous, is hybrid. That, that is how we will use this, right? As, as, as we think about deploying multiple different system architectures in, in lots of ways, right? We, we see cloud computing, centralized structures, on-premise data centers, compute and AI moving out to the edge. You know, my, my view is that we see the, the IT and the innovation happening all around us in so many different ways. And, and so one of the key challenges is how do we exploit all those innovations? How do we integrate them together for the particular purpose that we have you know, as, as business leaders, as technologists, as even end users? That's not easy. Um, one of the one of the particular opportunities here is is really leveraging the best of breed of each of those technologies and trying to bring that to bear for the for the problems and the the issues we're trying to solve. So you think about the the 
the AI solutions, the quantum and blockchain as examples, or how can we exploit those technologies for um, a more integrated uh, experience? So I think that that is research today, um, but we're already beginning to see, you know, think about ideas of using a quantum computer to accelerate certain workloads or application areas, being able to um, train AI models uh, that would allow us to optimize decision-making in um, you know, fraud detection or pick your favorite use case in financials, and then storing our, our trained models on a blockchain so that we can securely share that information um, in, a, in a way with a permissioned network that you have full auditability and traceability. But there, there, are, there are many of those kind of thought experiments where you, you see how these technologies don't live in a vacuum, have to integrate together in a meaningful way. And I think over, over the coming years as we advance each of those technologies, it's just as important as we find ways of really building end-to-end -end solutions. How do we apply the technology to meet the business need, not only advance the core individual technology itself? Okay. And Bob, maybe just to run things off, you know, we've been talking a little bit about future developments and partnerships, things like that. What is currently in development? We're at 50 qubits right now. You'd mentioned logical qubits, physical qubits. Either from a, from a development standpoint, what are you currently working on that might be of interest to our listeners? So let me give you the distinction, first of all, between physical and logical qubits. Um, if you pick up a textbook on quantum computing uh, and you learn about qubits, you learn about how to construct circuits that uh, perform various algorithms and so forth. Um, these qubits um, last forever. <laughs> they do exactly what they're supposed to do. Um, there is a probabilistic aspect to quantum computing, but you know everything behaves as expected in the textbook examples of qubits. Um, real qubits, <laughs> the ones that you actually build in hardware, were called physical qubits. And uh, some of your listeners may have seen um, our 50-qubit model. We have many photos, for example, on Flickr yeah. of, of quantum computers. Um, these real devices run at close to absolute zero, 15 millikelvin. Um, there's a lot of uh, instrumentation and infrastructure around refrigeration, around electronics. They're programmed using microwave pulses. Um, that is... They're really very physical, and, and, and as a result, um, actual qubits that you build have some errors associated with them, and errors can enter in, in a number of different ways. So earlier, I referred to having good enough or really good qubits, and by this, I mean really two things. One is that the error rates from the actual physical construction and use of the qubits are low enough so that you can take them into account somehow. Um, and there's something called coherence time. And coherence time means for, for a physical qubit, how long do you have before um, it starts to become chaotic? Or someone used the word yesterday with me, wonky. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and let me give, just give you an example to think about with this. So imagine you're looking at your smartphone and there's this beautiful photo you're staring at and you bring it up. And after a little while, some of the pixels start to turn white, just randomly. And 
you wait longer and longer, and the pixels are more and more of them are turning white. And if you could wait long enough, they'd all be white. The time that you have from when you first bring up that photograph to be, when the, the pixels start to randomly decay, right, is this coherence time. And the coherence time limits how much you can do. So if your coherence time is 100 of something, and each thing you want to do takes four of those somethings, you know, time units, then at most you can do 25, right? And if it's 1,000, then you can do 250 of them, right? So the work that we are doing this year is very, very much focused on improving the quality, what we call the fidelity of the qubits. This is not a year, to be honest with you, where it's so important about how many qubits anybody has, right? It really comes down to saying, are we making significant improvements in the quality of the qubits so that we can do more and better computations? And mm -hmm. once we're comfortable with that, then we'll increase the number of qubits. And then we'll work for a while on some other problems, uh, things like quality always, but maybe some other engineering problems. And after a while, we'll release some additional qubits. So it's a step function, right? The number of qubits is not going to grow. And um, I'll tell you, having 1,000 or 2,000 or 4,000 really lousy qubits is not better than having 50 really good qubits. <laughs> All right? So much of the focus at the core of what we're doing with regard to the actual quantum computing is related to this quality and fidelity. Aside from that, pro programmatically, I'm very interested in growing the ecosystem this year. I'm very interested in having as many universities as possible start to teach quantum computing. And of course, you know, this number I mentioned before, 94,000 users, I'd love to double or triple or quadruple that. I want people to get in there and really use actual quantum computers. And that will put everything on a good course to greater use and understanding. Okay. And Catherine, you know, obviously try not to use this as like a, an advertorial, but there's very few uh, people in the space that, that, that banks, uh, asset managers, exchanges can go to for something like this. So should one of our listeners want to start experimenting with quantum computers now, how would they go about uh, using IBM? Yeah, there are a couple of, um, a couple of modes. We do have our, our free access for early experimentation, the uh, IBM Q experience, and that's for running experiments, for learning what this is. There's lots of documentation, educational materials, um, and that's, um, that's a great way to, to simply explore. Uh, for, for our business partners that want to collaborate and to be able to run on larger systems to have access to the state of the art, we do have our IBM Q network, and we've been welcoming our partners as, as part of that. Um, we also now have expanded to a series of, of hubs, so around the world. Um, for example, in Japan, we're partnering with uh, Keio University, uh, who is now a member as a IBM Q hub, and they now have clients coming on, such as Mizuho Financial Group, as an example. So a financial services cart customer coming in through the hub, working with the university. So those are different ways that um, your listeners, if they're interested, can, can certainly participate and 
different ways, shape, and form. But 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 our message is that technology now is at a point where you know, it's a good time to start experimenting and to start to explore those those applications in different areas. And we're eager to partner and and help. Okay. Well, Catherine and Bob, I really appreciate you taking the time and patiently and clearly uh, explain this to a layman like myself and I'm sure like many of our listeners. Um, and uh, thank you for your time. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll link to some of the articles that we've written on this and we look forward to some of the developments in the future. Very good. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you.